First Book, First Aspect, Sections 5 and 6, of The World as Will and Idea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World as Will and Idea, Volume 1, by Arthur Schopenhauer, translated by R. B. Haldane and J. Kemp. First Book, First Aspect, Sections 5 and 6. Section 5. It is needful to guard against the grave error of supposing that because perception arises through the knowledge of causality, the relation of subject and object is that of cause and effect. For this relation subsists only between the immediate object and objects known indirectly, thus always between objects alone. It is this false supposition that has given rise to the foolish controversy about the reality of the outer world, a controversy in which dogmatism and skepticism oppose each other and the former appears now as realism, now as idealism. Realism treats the object as cause, and the subject as its effect. The idealism of Fichte reduces the object to the effect of the subject. Since, however, and this cannot be too much emphasized, there is absolutely no relation according to the principle of sufficient reason between subject and object, neither of these views could be proved and therefore skepticism attacked them both with success. Now, just as the law of causality precedes perception and experience as their condition, and therefore cannot, as Hume thought, be derived from them, so object and subject precede all knowledge, and hence the principle of sufficient reason in general as its first condition. For this principle is merely the form of all objects, the whole nature and possibility of their existence as phenomena. But the object always presupposes the subject, and therefore between these two there can be no relation of reason and consequent. My essay on the principle of sufficient reason accomplishes just this. It explains the content of that principle as the essential form of every object that is to say, as the universal nature of all objective existence, as something which pertains to the object as such. But the object as such always presupposes the subject as its necessary correlative. And therefore the subject remains always outside the province in which the principle of sufficient reason is valid. The controversy as to the reality of the outer world rests upon this false extension of the validity of the principle of sufficient reason to the subject also, and starting with this mistake it can never understand itself. On the one side realistic dogmatism, looking upon the idea as the effect of the object, desires to separate these two, idea and object, which are really one, and to assume a cause quite different from the idea an object in itself, independent of the subject, a thing which is quite inconceivable. For even as object it presupposes subject, and so remains its idea. Opposed to this doctrine is skepticism, which makes the same false presupposition that in the idea we have only the effect, never the cause, therefore never real being. That we always know merely the action of the object. But this object, it supposes, may perhaps have no resemblance whatever to its effect, 
may indeed have been quite erroneously received as the cause, for the law of causality is first to be gathered from experience, and the reality of experience is then made to rest upon it. Thus both of these views are open to the correction. Firstly, that object and idea are the same. Secondly, that the true being of the object of perception is its action, that the reality of the thing consists in this, and the demand for an existence of the object outside the idea of the subject, and also for an essence of the actual thing different from its action, has absolutely no meaning, and is a contradiction, and that the knowledge of the nature of the effect of any perceived object exhausts such an object itself, so far as it is object. In other words, idea for beyond this there is nothing more to be known. So far, then, the perceived world in space and time, which makes itself known as causation alone, is entirely real, and is throughout simply what it appears to be, and it appears wholly and without reserve as idea, bound together according to the law of causality. This is its empirical reality. On the other hand, all causality is in the understanding alone, and for the understanding. The whole actual, that is, active world, is determined as such through the understanding, and apart from it is nothing. This, however, is not the only reason for altogether denying such a reality of the outer world as is taught by the dogmatist, who explains its reality as its independence of the subject. We also deny it, because no object apart from a subject can be conceived without contradiction. The whole world of objects is and remains idea, and therefore wholly and forever determined by the subject. That is to say, it has transcendental ideality. But it is not therefore illusion or mere appearance. It presents itself as that which it is, idea, and indeed as a series of ideas of which the common bond is the principle of sufficient reason. It is according to its inmost meaning quite comprehensible to the healthy understanding, and speaks a language quite intelligible to it. To dispute about its reality can only occur to a mind perverted by over-subtlety, and such discussion always arises from a false application of the principle of sufficient reason, which binds all ideas together of whatever kind they may be, but by no means connects them with the subject, nor yet with a something which is neither subject nor object, but only the ground of the object. An absurdity, for only objects can be and always are the ground of objects. If we examine more closely the source of this question as to the reality of the outer world, we find that besides the false application of the principle of sufficient reason generally to what lies beyond its province, a special confusion of its forms is also involved for that form which it has only in reference to concepts or abstract ideas, is applied to perceived ideas, real objects, and a ground of knowing is demanded of objects, whereas they can have nothing but a ground of being. Among the abstract ideas, the concepts united in the judgment, the principle of sufficient reason, appears in such a way that each of these has its worth, its validity, and its whole existence, here called truth simply and solely through the relation of the judgment to something outside of it, its ground of knowledge, to which there must consequently always be a return. Among real objects, ideas of perception, on the other hand, the principle of sufficient reason appears not as the principle of the ground of knowing, but of being. 
as the law of causality. Every real object has paid its debt to it, inasmuch as it has come to be, in other words, has appeared as the effect of a cause. The demand for a ground of knowing has therefore here no application and no meaning, but belongs to quite another class of things. Thus the world of perception raises in the observer no question or doubt as long as he remains in contact with it. There is here neither error nor truth, for these are confined to the province of the abstract, the province of reflection. But here the world lies open for sense and understanding, presents itself with naive truth as that which it really is, ideas of perception which develop themselves according to the law of causality. So far as we have considered the question of the reality of the outer world, it arises from a confusion which amounts even to a misunderstanding of reason itself, and therefore thus far the question could be answered only by explaining its meaning. After examination of the whole nature of the principle of sufficient reason, of the relation of subject and object, and the special conditions of sense-perception, the question itself disappeared, because it had no longer any meaning. There is, however, one other possible origin of this question, quite different from the purely speculative one which we have considered, a specially empirical origin, though the question is always raised from a speculative point of view, and in this form it has a much more comprehensible meaning than it had in the first. We have dreams. May not our whole life be a dream? Or more exactly, is there a sure criterion of the distinction between dreams and reality, between phantasms and real objects? The assertion that what is dreamt is less vivid and distinct than what we actually perceive is not to the point, because no one has ever been able to make a fair comparison of the two. For we can only compare the recollection of a dream with the present reality. Kant answers the question thus. The connection of ideas among themselves, according to the law of causality, constitutes the difference between real life and dreams. But in dreams, as well as in real life, everything is connected individually at any rate, in accordance with the principle of sufficient reason in all its forms. And this connection is broken only between life and dreams, or between one dream and another. Kant's answer therefore could only run thus. The long dream, life, has throughout complete connection according to the principle of sufficient reason. It has not this connection, however, with short dreams, although each of these has in itself the same connection. The bridge is therefore broken between the former and the latter, and on this account we distinguish them. But to institute an inquiry according to this criterion, as to whether something was dreamt or seen, would always be difficult, and often impossible. For we are by no means in a position to trace link by link the causal connection between any experienced event and the present moment. But we do not on that account explain it as dreamt. Therefore, in real life we do not commonly employ that method of distinguishing between dreams and reality. The only sure criterion by which to distinguish them is in fact the entirely empirical one of awaking through which at any rate the causal connection between dreamed events and those of waking life is distinctly and sensibly broken off. This is strongly supported by the remark of Hobbes in the second chapter of Leviathan, 
that we easily mistake dreams for reality if we have unintentionally fallen asleep without taking off our clothes and much more so when it also happens that some undertaking or design fills all our thoughts and occupies our dreams as well as our waking moments we then observe the awaking just as little as the falling asleep dream and reality run together and become confounded in such a case there is nothing for it but the application of kant's criterion but if as often happens we fail to establish by means of this criterion either the existence of causal connection with the present or the absence of such connection then it must forever remain uncertain whether an event was dreamt or really happened here in fact the intimate relationship between life and dreams is brought out very clearly and we need not be ashamed to confess it as it has been recognized and spoken of by many great men the vedas and puranas have no better simile than a dream for the whole knowledge of the actual world which they call the web of maya and they use none more frequently plato often says that men live only in a dream the philosopher alone strives to awake himself pindar says two one thirty five umbre somnium homo and sophocles nos enem quicunque vivimus nihil aliud esse compario quam simulacra et levem umbrum ajax one twenty five beside which most worthily stands shakespeare we are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with a sleep tempest act four scene one lastly calderon was so deeply impressed with this view of life that he sought to embody it in a kind of metaphysical drama life a dream after these numerous quotations from the poets perhaps i also may be allowed to express myself by a metaphor life and dreams are leaves of the same book the systematic reading of this book is real life but when the reading hours that is the day are over we often continue idly to turn over the leaves and read a page here and there without method or connection often one we have read before sometimes one that is new to us but always in the same book such an isolated page is indeed out of connection with the systematic study of the book but it does not seem so very different when we remember that the whole continuous perusal begins and ends just as abruptly and may therefore be regarded as merely a larger single page thus although individual dreams are distinguished from real life by the fact that they do not fit into that continuity which runs through the whole of experience and the act of awaking brings this into consciousness yet that very continuity of experience belongs to real life as its form and the dream on its part can point to a similar continuity in itself if therefore we consider the question from a point of view external to both there is no distinct difference in their nature and we are forced to concede to the poets that life is a long dream let us turn back now from this quite independent empirical origin of the question of the reality of the outer world to its speculative origin we found that this consisted first in the false application of the principle of sufficient reason to the relation of subject and object and secondly in the confusion of its forms inasmuch as the principle of sufficient reason of knowing was extended to a province in which the principle of sufficient reason of being is valid 
But the question could hardly have occupied philosophers so constantly if it were entirely devoid of all real content, and if some true thought and meaning did not lie at its heart as its real source. Accordingly, we must assume that when the element of truth that lies at the bottom of the question first came into reflection and sought its expression, it became involved in these confused and meaningless forms and problems. This at least is my opinion, and I think that the true expression of that inmost meaning of the question, which it failed to find, is this. What is this world of perception besides being my idea? Is that of which I am conscious only as idea, exactly like my own body, of which I am doubly conscious, in one aspect as idea, in another aspect as will? The fuller explanation of this question, and its answer, in the affirmative, will form the content of the second book, and its consequences will occupy the remaining portion of this work. Section 6 For the present, however, in this first book we consider everything merely as idea, as object for the subject, and our own body, which is the starting point for each of us in our perception of the world, we consider, like all other real objects, from the side of its knowableness, and in this regard it is simply an idea. Now the consciousness of every one is in general opposed to the explanation of objects as mere ideas, and more especially to the explanation of our bodies as such. For the thing in itself is known to each of us immediately in so far as it appears as our own body, but in so far as it objectifies itself in the other objects of perception, it is known only indirectly. But this abstraction, this one-sided treatment, this forcible separation of what is essentially and necessarily united, is only adopted to meet the demands of our argument, and therefore the disinclination to it must in the meantime be suppressed and silenced by the expectation that the subsequent treatment will correct the one-sidedness of the present one, and complete our knowledge of the nature of the world. At present, therefore, the body is for us immediate object, that is to say, that idea which forms the starting point of the subject's knowledge, because the body, with its immediately known changes, precedes the application of the law of causality, and thus supplies it with its first data. The whole nature of matter consists, as we have seen, in its causal action, but cause and effect exist only for the understanding which is nothing but their subjective correlative. The understanding, however, could never come into operation if there were not something else from which it starts. This is simple sensation, the immediate consciousness of the changes of the body, by virtue of which it is immediate object. Thus, the possibility of knowing the world of perception depends upon two conditions. The first, objectively expressed, is the power of material things to act upon each other, to produce changes in each other, without which common quality of all bodies no perception would be possible, even by means of the sensibility of the animal body. And if we wish to express this condition, subjectively, we say, the understanding first makes perception possible, for the law of causality, the possibility of effect and cause, springs only from the understanding, and is valid only for it. And therefore, the world of perception exists only through and for it. The second condition is the sensibility of animal bodies, or the quality of being immediate objects of the subject which certain bodies possess. 
The mere modification which the organs of sense sustain from without through their specific affections may here be called ideas, so far as these affections produce neither pain nor pleasure, that is, have no immediate significance for the will, and are yet perceived, exist therefore only for knowledge. Thus far, then, I say that the body is immediately known, here in its fullest sense, but through this immediate knowledge of the body which precedes the operation of the understanding, and is mere sensation, our own body does not exist specifically as object, but first the material things which affect it. For all knowledge of an object proper, of an idea perceived in space, exists only through and for the understanding. Therefore, not before, but only subsequently to its operation. Therefore the body as object proper, that is, as an idea perceived in space, is first known indirectly, like all other objects, through the application of the law of causality to the action of one of its parts upon another, as, for example, when the eye sees the body or the hand touches it. Consequently the form of our body does not become known to us through mere feeling, but only through knowledge, only in idea. That is to say, only in the brain does our own body first come to appear as extended, articulate, organic. A man born blind receives this idea only little by little from the data afforded by touch. A blind man without hands could never come to know his own form, or at the most could infer and construct it little by little from the effects of other bodies upon him. If, then, we call the body an immediate object, we are to be understood with these reservations. In other respects, then, according to what has been said, all animal bodies are immediate objects, that is, starting-points for the subject, which always knows and therefore is never known in its perception of the world. Thus the distinctive characteristic of animal life is knowledge, with movement following on motives, which are determined by knowledge just as movement following on stimuli is the distinctive characteristic of plant life. Unorganized matter, however, has no movement except such as is produced by causes properly so called, using the term in its narrowest sense. All this I have thoroughly discussed in my essay on the principle of sufficient reason. Section 20. In the Ethics. First Essay. 3. And in my work on Sight and Color. Section 1, to which I therefore refer. It follows from what has been said that all animals, even the least developed, have understanding, for they all know objects, and this knowledge determines their movements as motive. Understanding is the same in all animals and in all men. It has everywhere the same simple form. Knowledge of causality, transition from effect to cause, and from cause to effect, nothing more. But the degree of its acuteness, and the extension of the sphere of its knowledge, varies enormously, with innumerable gradations from the lowest form, which is only conscious of the causal connection between the immediate object and objects affecting it, that is to say, perceives a cause as an object in space by passing to it from the affection which the body feels, to the higher grades of knowledge of the causal connection among objects known indirectly which extends to the understanding of the most complicated system of cause and effect in nature. For even this high degree of knowledge is still the work of the understanding, not of the reason. The abstract concepts of the reason 
can only serve to take up the objective connections which are immediately known by the understanding, to make them permanent for thought, and to relate them to each other. But reason never gives us immediate knowledge. Every force and law of nature, every example of such forces and laws, must first be immediately known by the understanding, must be apprehended through perception, before it can pass into abstract consciousness for reason. Hooke's discovery of the law of gravitation, and the reference of so many important phenomena to this one law, was the work of immediate apprehension by the understanding. And such also was the proof of Newton's calculations, and Lavoisier's discovery of acids and their important function in nature, and also Goethe's discovery of the origin of physical colours. All these discoveries are nothing more than a correct immediate passage from the effect to the cause which is at once followed by the recognition of the ideality of the force of nature which expresses itself in all causes of the same kind. And this complete insight is just an example of that single function of the understanding, by which an animal perceives as an object in space the cause which affects its body, and differs from such a perception only in degree. Every one of these great discoveries is therefore just like perception, an operation of the understanding, an immediate intuition, and as such the work of an instant, an aperçu, a flash of insight. They are not the result of a process of abstract reasoning, which only serves to make the immediate knowledge of the understanding permanent for thought by bringing it under abstract concepts. In other words, it makes knowledge distinct, it puts us in a position to impart it and explain it to others. The keenness of the understanding in apprehending the causal relations of objects which are known indirectly does not find its only application in the sphere of natural science, though all the discoveries in that sphere are due to it, but it also appears in practical life. It is then called good sense or prudence, as in its other application it is better called acuteness, penetration, sagacity. More exactly, good sense or prudence signifies exclusively understanding at the command of the will. But the limits of these conceptions must not be too sharply defined, for it is always that one function of the understanding by means of which all animals perceive objects in space, which, in its keenest form, appears now in the phenomena of nature, correctly inferring the unknown causes from the given effects and providing the material from which the reason frames general rules as laws of nature, now inventing complicated and ingenious machines by adapting known causes to desired effects, now in the sphere of motives, seeing through and frustrating intrigues and machinations, or fitly disposing the motives and the men who are susceptible to them, setting them in motion, as machines are moved by levers and wheels, and directing them at will to the accomplishment of its ends. Deficiency of understanding is called stupidity. It is just dullness in applying the law of causality, incapacity for the immediate apprehension of the concatenations of causes and effects, motives and actions. A stupid person has no insight into the connection of natural phenomena, either when they follow their own course, or when they are intentionally combined in other words, are applied to machinery. Such a man readily believes in magic and miracles. A stupid man does not observe that persons who apparently act independently of each other are really in collusion. 
He is therefore easily mystified and outwitted. He does not discern the hidden motives of proffered advice or expressions of opinion, etc. But it is always just one thing that he lacks—keenness, rapidity, ease in applying the law of causality, in other words, power of understanding. The greatest, and in this reference the most instructive example of stupidity I ever met with, was the case of a totally imbecile boy of about eleven years of age, in an asylum. He had reason, because he spoke and comprehended, but in respect of understanding he was inferior to many of the lower animals. Whenever I visited him, he noticed an eyeglass which I wore round my neck, and in which the window of the room and the tops of the trees beyond were reflected. On every occasion he was greatly surprised and delighted with this, and was never tired of looking at it with astonishment, because he did not understand the immediate causation of reflection. While the difference in degree of the acuteness of the understanding is very great between man and man, it is even greater between one species of animal and another. In all species of animals, even those which are nearest to plants, there is at least as much understanding as suffices for the inference from the effect on the immediate object to the indirectly known object as its cause, in other words, sufficient for perception, for the apprehension of an object. For it is this that constitutes them animals, as it gives them the power of movement following on motives, and thereby the power of seeking for food, or at least of seizing it. Whereas plants have only movement followed on stimuli, whose direct influence they must await, or else decay, for they cannot seek after them, nor appropriate them. We marvel at the great sagacity of the most developed species of animals, such as the dog, the elephant, the monkey or the fox, whose cleverness has been so admirably sketched by Buffon. From these most sagacious animals we can pretty accurately determine how far understanding can go without reason, in other words, abstract knowledge embodied in concepts. We could not find this out from ourselves, for in us understanding and reason always reciprocally support each other. We find that the manifestation of understanding in animals is sometimes above our expectation, and sometimes below it. On the one hand we are surprised at the sagacity of the elephant, who after crossing many bridges during his journey in Europe, once refused to go upon one, because he thought it was not strong enough to bear his weight, though he saw the rest of the party, consisting of men and horses, go upon it as usual. On the other hand, we wonder that the intelligent orangutans, who warm themselves at a fire they have found, do not keep it alight by throwing wood on it, a proof that this requires a deliberation which is not possible without abstract concepts. It is clear that the knowledge of cause and effect, as the universal form of understanding, belongs to all animals a priori, because to them as to us it is the prior condition of all perception of the outer world. If any one desires additional proof of this, let him observe, for example, how a young dog is afraid to jump down from a table, however much he may wish to do so, because he foresees the effect of the weight of his body, though he has not been taught this by experience. In judging of the understanding of animals, we must guard against ascribing to it the manifestations of instinct, a faculty which is quite distinct both from understanding and reason, but the action of which is often very analogous to the combined action of the two. We cannot, however, discuss this here. It will find its proper place in the second book, when we consider the harmony or so-called 
teleology of nature, and the twenty-seventh chapter of the supplementary volume is expressly devoted to it. Deficiency of understanding we call stupidity. Deficiency in the application of reason to practice we shall recognize later as foolishness. Deficiency of judgment as silliness. And lastly, partial or entire deficiency of memory as madness. But each of these will be considered in its own place. That which is correctly known by reason is truth, that is, an abstract judgment on sufficient grounds. Essay on the Principle of Sufficient Reason, section 29 and following paragraphs. That which is correctly known by understanding is reality, that is correct inference from effect on the immediate object to its cause. Error is opposed to truth, as deception of the reason. Illusion is opposed to reality, as deception of the understanding. The full discussion of all this will be found in the first chapter of my essay on light and color. Illusion takes place when the same effect may be attributed to two causes, of which one occurs very frequently, the other very seldom. The understanding, having no data to decide which of these two causes operates in any particular case, for their effects are exactly alike, always assumes the presence of the commoner cause, and as the activity of the understanding is not reflective and discursive, but direct and immediate, this false cause appears before us as a perceived object, whereas it is merely illusion. I have explained in the essay referred to how in this way double sight and double feeling take place if the organs of sense are brought into an unusual position, and have thus given an incontrovertible proof that the perception exists only through and for the understanding. As additional examples of such illusions or deceptions of the understanding, we may mention the broken appearance of a stick dipped in water, the reflections in spherical mirrors, which when the surface is convex appear somewhat behind it, and when the surface is concave appear a long way in front of it. To this class also belongs the apparently greater extension of the moon at the horizon than at the zenith. This appearance is not optical, for as the micrometer proves, the eye receives the image of the moon at the zenith, at an even greater angle of vision than at the horizon. The mistake is due to the understanding, which assumes that the cause of the feebler light of the moon, and of all stars at the horizon, is that they are further off, thus treating them as earthly objects according to the laws of atmospheric perspective, and therefore it takes the moon to be much larger at the horizon than at the zenith, and also regards the vault of heaven as more extended or flattened out at the horizon. The same false application of the laws of atmospheric perspective leads us to suppose that very high mountains, whose summits alone are visible in pure transparent air, are much nearer than they really are, and therefore not so high as they are. For example, Mont Blanc, seen from Salenche. All such illusions are immediately present to us as perceptions, and cannot be dispelled by any arguments of the reason. Reason can only prevent error, that is, a judgment on insufficient grounds, by opposing to it a truth. As for example, the abstract knowledge that the cause of the weaker light of the moon and the stars at the horizon is not greater distance, but the denser atmosphere. But in all the cases we have referred to, the illusion remains in spite of every abstract explanation. For the understanding is in itself, even in the case of man, irrational, 
and is completely and sharply distinguished from the reason, which is a faculty of knowledge that belongs to man alone. The reason can only know. Perception remains free from its influence, and belongs to the understanding alone. End of First Book, First Aspect, Sections 5 and 6 Recording by Bill Borst